Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Tor Bear, founder of The Secret Network, which is a data privacy platform for Web3. It's the first blockchain with smart contracts that have data privacy built in by default. This is something that I've been tweeting about a lot recently and getting a lot of uh, passionate responses on both sides of the spectrum. And so I'm really excited to have Tor here today with me to share his thoughts on privacy and blockchain and to tell you all a little bit more about Secret Network. So welcome, Tor. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk privacy. Awesome. And you've got the hat branded right there. So uh, you, you came prepared. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this this isn't mine. Yeah. No, nah, we, we, we had a great time handing these out. We were all at the conference in New York the other week and we brought our privacy hats and they were very popular. And so I figured um, I'd wear them here because if anybody's interested in getting one at the end of the podcast there, we like to give this stuff away because privacy should be for everyone. Yeah, I got I got my own privacy hat at Mainnet and I was wearing it around New York and it ended up in a lot of photos and people like I'd be posting a photo like a group photo about something totally unrelated to privacy or anything like that. And people will be commenting and be like, where did you get that sick hat? Like, where can I get one? Like, that's like all people cared about was this hat. So. So, yeah, we'll have to cue people in at the end on how they can get their very own privacy hat. Before we dive into Secret Network, I'm curious to know a little bit about your background, how you got into crypto in the first place. So take us all the way back to when you first heard about crypto, how you got into the space, like what got you interested, how you started learning. So the first time I heard about anything cryptocurrency related was while I was still in my former career as an options trader back in, you know, the early, early 2010s. And at the time, options trading is a very exciting sort of career, like some of the time and then like super boring a lot of the time when like nothing is happening. Volatility isn't very exciting. But as soon as everything goes wrong, volatility is exciting. Options trading is exciting, but you have a lot of downtime. And during that downtime, a lot of us were looking at, okay, well, if the regular market is slow, what's super exciting? What's volatile? What's happening? And Bitcoin was super volatile. Bitcoin was super exciting. It was like a dollar. Then it was $100. Then it was $1,000. Then it was $200 again. So there were all of these big swings going on. And it was definitely the volatility that first caught my attention because I professionally worked in volatility. Volatility was my field. But that didn't mean I appreciated it as a technology or as a long-term investment or anything like that. It was just you know something that moved a lot in terms of like a dollar value. Uh, it wasn't until I got to grad school I went to MIT to do my MBA in 2014. And by the time I got there, they were already incubating some of the Bitcoin core developers at the Media Lab. They were teaching one of the very first blockchain courses in the nation. So I got really lucky, right place, right time to be around people who didn't see Bitcoin just as some sort of speculative asset class, but as a technology that was worthy of investment of time, energy, resources, and that was a minority opinion at the time. I remember the MIT Bitcoin Club gave Bitcoin away to all the undergrads on campus, and most of them either never claimed it, forgot about it, or sold it immediately so they could buy pizza. And that, at the time, didn't feel like a very irrational thing to do. Um, but my attention was definitely captured at that point by the technology. So in those years that I was there, being around the technologists who really understood not only what Bitcoin was, but what it could be. Uh, that, that I was very lucky because most people didn't have that exposure. They only got to see the volatility. And if it weren't for the fact that I was there at the same time as the, as you know, Guy Ziskind, the CEO of Enigma at the time that he was writing the white papers and researching privacy in blockchain, if it weren't for that, I certainly wouldn't be doing what I am now. Um, but I probably just wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have been early enough to, to discover this stuff instead of getting involved full time in 2017, I might only be getting involved now. And honestly, like. I wish that everybody had then the access I had then to be able to see 
the technology for being a technology because then I think the space would be a lot larger than it was. And it, it was just a lot of years of people just purely seeing it as a speculative asset class that held back its growth in those early years. I think things are different now. Things are definitely different. I think there definitely is still a group of people that only view crypto as a you know speculative asset. I think those people still very much exist, but the landscape has for sure shifted a lot since uh, the early days. You go, you know, get your MBA, you learn about the technology underlying this underlying crypto, and that's what gets you excited. How did you move from there to getting this idea for the secret network? Walk us through that. Yeah, I, I try to be clear, right? Like the whole idea of privacy and blockchain is is not like an idea that I have independently. This is just I'm part of a big ecosystem of people who were early evangelists of that vision. But I, I would say the earliest evangelist of that vision was Guy, who was the CEO, well, who he is the CEO of Enigma. But at the time that I met him, he was still at the Media Lab as a researcher. And he published this white paper called Decentralizing Privacy. And it was this idea that you could combine privacy technologies with decentralized blockchains and create these secure computation platforms. And this would be the future of how every piece of data moved through the Internet. Not only would it be secure by default, it would also be decentralized by default. And you could argue that that idea was at least a half decade ahead of its time. People weren't even thinking about all the privacy issues that became obvious after Cambridge Analytica and such a couple years later. People weren't even thinking about the potential of blockchain beyond simple transactions. And he was already thinking about what if these were like robust smart contract platforms? What if we had the capability to make them private by default? And I guess I was in the right place, right time, because to me, it was just another like super bleeding edge vision in a place where bleeding edge visions kind of come to be incubated and developed. So I didn't see it as an idea ahead of its time. I just saw it as a really cool idea that had a lot of the smartest people in the world already thinking about it. So in 2017, I had the opportunity to work full time uh, with the Enigma team as the head of growth in those early, early stages to start thinking about what are private smart contracts going to do? How could they revolutionize what blockchain is rapidly becoming? This was like the ICO boom era. Um, between my MBA and doing that, I actually worked at Snapchat for a year. That was really the only thing I did after my MBA before trying to be in the space full time. And I was a data scientist there. And being a data scientist at a social media company definitely convinced me that the place to apply myself in the blockchain space was going to be data privacy, because uh, I saw that it certainly wasn't going to be protected by centralized platforms and centralized entities in the traditional Web 2 world. Uh, and I definitely didn't want to work in a Web 3 world where we were just going to make the same mistakes all over again. Um, so all I did was, you know, graduate, gain conviction, have an incredible, unique opportunity to join early on something that I had had exposure to a couple of years before. Uh, and it's four plus years later, and I'm still working on the same idea, hoping that we can scale privacy across all of Web3. For sure. Awesome. Um, so I, I want to take a step back and set the stage a little bit because we're going to be diving in deep into privacy and blockchain and all, all this good stuff for people listening who are maybe newer to the space Let's set the stage for them by talking about some of the issues that we run into with privacy uh, today. And then, you know, we can move into talking about how we can potentially solve some of those issues in the future. Right. Privacy is an issue all over the, the Internet space and not just Web3, obviously also Web2. So people weren't talking about it as much until there were some major catastrophes. That's usually how things go. Something breaks, then finally people are aware of the issue. But there have been people talking about these issues of privacy online since the moment we actually had the internet at scale. Uh, and it just kind of came to a head once we had billions of users hooked into the same platforms and those platforms proved to be insecure. So you're talking about the Cambridge Analytica leaks with Facebook, but also Uber and its data breaches, the, uh, the, F the Equifax leak of all everybody's social security numbers. Web2 has a huge privacy problem and it's, you know, costs are in the billions and the fines are in the billions and it impacts literally every user of the internet on the planet when these platforms are insecure. But as bad as Web2 privacy is, so far Web3 privacy is even worse because Web2 privacy, you have to wait around for a hack, you have to wait around for a data leak, you have to wait for a vulnerability in a platform. 
Web3 up until this point, this whole blockchain space, Ethereum and everything else, these are all public by default blockchains. And what that means is if you put data on the blockchain, by default, everything about that data is exposed, not only to every user of the blockchain, but anybody who even looks at the blockchain, which could be anybody in the world. There's no idea of access control. There's no idea of this is mine and this is yours. The only thing that belongs only to the user is access to the wallet. But the contents of that wallet and the interactions of that wallet, absolutely everything is public by default. One of the great things about blockchain's design is that it allows for transparency and auditability, but it's also its biggest flaw. Because if you only have total transparency to all users or to all applications, it creates massive security risks, it creates uh, usability concerns, just everything kind of falls apart pretty quickly because you can imagine it the same way as if you used Facebook, but every single piece of data on that platform was public to everybody else by default, not just advertisers when they request it, not just your friends when you give them permission, but just literally every human on the planet. So the Web3 world has a big problem, even bigger than the Web2 world when it comes to privacy. And what we're trying to do with Secret Network is build Web3 in such a way where you can have privacy by default for all these decentralized applications and still make data public and share it when you need it or when you request it. Uh, and that private by default model, we believe, is going to be the dominant model in Web3, the way that we have an expectation of data privacy by default for Web2 applications. We actually had a conversation in a previous, a recent podcast episode with our founder, Matthew Gold, talking about this. And his thesis was sort of that uh, maybe, you know, what what we're really after is like privacy by default for individuals and maybe public by default for governments or, or for businesses or for sort of like group transactions. Do you agree with that thesis? How would you sort of like explain it from your perspective? Uh, I would say that governments and businesses are not going to be in favor of that thesis. I mean, everybody values their own data and their own privacy. And historically, governments and businesses have valued their trade secrets most of all. I think you're going to have a hard time unless you have leverage, right? In these systems, the problem is that historically users haven't had leverage. We can't demand that platforms or companies or governments behave a certain way. The accountability of like the, the democratic vote doesn't even seem to be doing enough to make governments operate transparently and open with, with their own citizens, even in democratic countries, right? This, this goes beyond like authoritarian regimes. So even though it might be the preferred model, the idealistic model to say, we'll have humans into, on an individual level protected, and then our governing bodies are going to be transparent and accountable and auditable. I would say I'm a bit more of a realist in the short term to be able to say, I think we'll start with the private by default model for everyone, because at least then everybody has privacy. Privacy is no longer a luxury good. It's available to everyone. Whereas today, privacy is a luxury only available to governments, only to the largest businesses. And everybody else just has to assume that we're being exploited and surveilled by default. Once we have that private by default model, we can talk about other ways to have accountability for entities and institutions. Uh, for any institution, we would permit as individuals to govern our lives, to govern our commerce, to govern uh, our citizenship. We're going to be able to attack those questions in different ways. And hopefully it empowers us as individuals to be able to finally have the leverage and say, we won't want to be governed by anybody who won't adhere to a higher level of accountability and transparency because we won't have to rely on these institutions to protect our privacy, we will be able to have better control of our own self-sovereignty. And the types of governing institutions we'll consent to are only those types of entities that further that ability to be protected, to keep our freedoms and be able to you know, build the society that we would choose, not the one that's thrust upon us. Um, so yeah, I agree with the end state. I like it as a vision. I have a very hard time thinking that our current governments, world governments, are, are going to permit anything close to like they have to be public by default, but they have to protect the citizens. I'm, I'm not quite that naive. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely agree with that. So when you say privacy by default, I can already hear some of our listeners you know, arguing back and saying this goes against the whole ethos of blockchain. It's meant to be an open and transparent ledger. Uh, how do you respond to that? I believe that, you know, you have to have programmability for privacy. 
because as soon as you say everything has to be public by default, you're removing programmability and choice for data and data privacy. I, I use the same example literally every podcast, but I'm going to use it again only because I think it helps people understand like the weakness of the public by default model. And it's the toothpaste analogy. And I'll stop using it when it stops working, but it seems to be the one that works the best. If you want to brush your teeth, the normal obvious way to do it is you unscrew the lid of the toothpaste. You squeeze out a little bit of toothpaste. You take the toothpaste you need. You brush your teeth. You put the cap back on the toothpaste. No other toothpaste comes out. You wash your toothbrush. You're done. Everybody in the world, in theory, should be brushing their teeth this way. It just makes the most sense. That is the private by default model for data usage. The public by default model would be is if you took the entire tube of toothpaste and the only way to use the toothpaste was if you started by emptying out the entire tube all over the bathroom counter. And then you stuck your toothpaste in a little bit of the toothpaste. But meanwhile, everybody else came over and watched you do it. And everybody else put their toothpaste and put their toothbrush in the same toothpaste. And then everybody was brushing each other's teeth. And then at the end of it, all the toothpaste is still on the counter because there's no way to put it back in the tube. That's the public by default model. And if you look at Ethereum and you look at like Etherscan and all these blockchain explorers, that's literally what's happening. At any time, you can just see exactly what everybody else is doing. And you have no choice in it. You can't be like, oh, this part is only visible to these users or to this application under these circumstances. There is no programmability. It's only transparent by default. And there's no way to actually add anything on top of that. Because once something is public, you can't put it back in the tube. You can't put the cat back in the bag. It's just public now. The privacy by default model is saying when something needs to be public, when it needs to be auditable, you as a developer, you as a user can choose what those circumstances are. You can choose when access is necessary. You can protect the data when it's not necessary to be used. And the public by default model is basically just saying the opposite. It's like you have no choice in the matter. And I believe that the ethos of Web3 isn't public by default, everything transparent all the time. The ethos is more control on the part of the users, more autonomy, more freedom, and more choice. And the private by default model is the model that gives users choice, that gives developers choice. And I don't want us to lose sight of like that actually being the ethos of Web3 as opposed to like all, all things transparent all of the time, because that just gives governments and enterprises and so on, anybody who embraces Web3, that's just a license to surveil in a way that's far more invasive and, and far more pervasive than anything we're currently experiencing in the Web2 world. So I think this model works really well for sort of like normal people, good actors, but of course there's always going to be bad actors out there. And so in the case of bad actors, if somebody is doing really harmful things and the only person that can publicize their transactions is that person themselves, and obviously they're not going to, you know, willingly publicize the transaction if they're a bad actor. How do you like look at situations like this? This is the fundamental challenge of any permissionless blockchain, right? Because people are going to say, what do you do if a bad actor utilizes the system? Well, you know, what are we going to do if bad actors utilize the traditional financial systems, right? Like it's a very long process of legal battles and corruption and everything else. Like more money is laundered with the U.S. dollar than any cryptocurrency by orders of magnitude. So it's just a question of like, what are we willing to permit? And of course, the current monetary system is incredibly non-transparent. And, and everything gets filtered through shell corporations and everything. Like the, the way to answer that question, I mean, like you're not wrong to raise that concern. It's just let's not start from a point of naivety about like what's currently happening with financial systems that we all accept by default or that we have no choice but to accept. We're trying to build something better, not necessarily jump to something perfect because there's no such thing as like a perfect and completely secure and completely anything system. We're just trying to build better systems that work for people that current systems are not working for. The current system seems to work great for people who want to launder money or run drugs or anything else. Like there doesn't seem to be anything about the current system that is like unacceptable to criminals. And there's certainly nothing about Bitcoin, for example, that makes it better for criminals. In fact, I think, you know, as, as a public by default transactional, mostly transactional blockchain, like Bitcoin is very unappealing to anybody trying to do any sort of illicit activity. But the point to understand about Secret, for example, is we are not a, a transactional privacy blockchain. We're a computational privacy blockchain. We just allow for applications. The control for what you're describing, for like making sure the right people are using this for the right reasons, every all of that should live at the application layer. 
you can have an application on secret that says in order to use this application, in order to interact with this smart contract, you need to have a whitelisted address. You need to have gone through some sort of on-chain KYC process. People need to know that you are a good actor in order to integrate with and use this application. And then once you use the application, you don't need to reveal everything about yourself all of the time to other parties. So you can be a business interacting with other businesses, but not needing to leak all of the sensitive data of your customers or your internal operations to everybody else. The important thing here is the permissionlessness and to the people using it, the important thing is the privacy, but to get around the idea that bad actors could be using this. And that's why you want to have these sort of like off-chain verification models. There's, there's nothing inherent to blockchain, to any blockchain that allows for something like verifiability of who you are as a U.S. citizen. Ultimately, the only person who can, the only entity that can verify you as a citizen of a country is the country itself and, and not Bitcoin and not Ethereum. Somebody somewhere has to say, this person is a passport holder. This person isn't money laundering. They have to verify you in some way that a blockchain alone can't solve. So we want to take these types of verification or KYC solutions, we can combine them with a platform like Secret, and at the application layer, we want to create applications that solve that issue for users. But if you try to do it at like the layer one itself and try to say everything, the only way to solve this problem is for everything to be transparent to everyone, or to say the only way to solve this problem is that only people I say can use the blockchain at all, on the one hand, you have the public by default permissionless model which has huge security and usability concerns, what I already said, the leaking all data by default doesn't really work for me. But on the other side, now all you've done is create a permissioned blockchain, which in most cases, and if not all cases, is no better than just using some sort of centralized database or other sort of like private distributed ledger. And Secret is trying to be in the middle, something completely new, something completely useful, in a way that it's like actually innovating on something in a way that's not compromising user security. And it, it certainly doesn't exist to facilitate any sort of nefarious activity. It's just a better system for dealing with all the potential use cases of some sort of distributed system for applications. Right. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, what Serto is trying to do. Are you familiar with them? No, actually, I'm not. What are they trying to do? They're uh, basically like finding a solution to basically like what you're saying, like having the government verify your identity. And then uh, that way, you know, once whatever identity you carry in your wallet, like say I want to go to the bar and I want to get a drink, I don't have to show them what my date of birth is necessarily. It'll just be, are you over 21? Yes or no. And that has already been verified by, you know, a trusted uh, authority like the government or, you know, whoever the body is. So you're basically saying like with an application. So say I want to interact uh, with, you know, buying NFTs on an application. So then what would happen is then like the application itself would verify whether I am a good actor or a bad actor. Um, and if, if they determine that I'm a good actor, then I'm allowed in, I'm allowed to buy NFTs there, sell NFTs, do whatever I want. And uh, nobody has to see like every single transaction that I conduct there. Um, is that that's kind of what it sounds like to me? Is that accurate? I mean, that's one use case of the network, right? That's a use case that you can allow for in a network like this is like an application only accesses the information about me that the application needs to know to function. And as the user, you now have more control over that. The identity is really a hard problem and reputation is a really hard problem. Like these are hard problems. They're going to remain hard problems in the web two and in the web three space because you don't want to be relying on centralized entities to store all your information. So this is where a lot of like zero knowledge research comes in. You want people to be able to say, I know something about myself. I want to prove to you that I know this thing about myself and that it's true. I don't want to show you everything about myself, but you can know that I'm telling the truth when I say this certain thing about myself. That's like the zero knowledge domain. It's only a small piece of like the privacy domain because you still can't solve with zero knowledge proofs questions where nobody has the complete set of data. For a zero knowledge proof to work, you have to know everything about yourself still and then prove it to another party. But I'm really interested in the use cases where multiple people can come together, like a private auction use case, for example. Say you want to bid on an NFT. I want to bid on an NFT. 10 people want to bid on an NFT. None of us want to show our bids to each other. None of us want to reveal our identities to each other. But we all want to know provably at the end that the right person won the auction and for what amount. 
a private smart contract or a secret contract on our network, that's an application that's very easy to build based on the infrastructure of the network. We can all contribute our own piece of the data. Nobody ever sees all of the data together, but the secret contract itself can compute the winner of the auction and the NFT can be distributed to the right party. And if you want to have a private auction that also combines the access control use case, so only people who own a certain NFT can bid on this auction, or only people who have been certified elsewhere in some way can access this application, that's where I'm saying for like applications on the network, you can build out those kinds of access control use cases to be able to interact with these applications if you want to make sure that no money launderers are bidding on this particular NFT platform. But once you start solving that stuff at layer one, I think you are no longer a generalizable platform and you no longer gain like the security properties of being a very, you know, uh, scalable platform that can support a lot of these different use cases. You just become like a very application specific blockchain and uh, then you lose a lot of those security properties of scale. Okay, gotcha. And then on the back end, all of this is happening through zero knowledge proofs? On secret, it works different. So that's why I'm saying zero knowledge is like something that could be used a lot of people are looking at like ZK rollups for uh, for security and scalability, and, and so are we. But currently, the network actually relies on a different security model. We use secure enclaves in the network, which is the same thing that like smartphones will use if they want to like say like verify your fingerprint, but you don't want to share your fingerprint with literally everyone, right? So it's like something that's not even accessible to the rest of the CPU is being executed inside that secure environment. So our whole network is composed of what we call secret nodes. And each of those nodes in the network is operating an enclave. And the blockchain itself is operating inside the enclave so that the node itself can't even see what's going on. They can't see the input data. And we balance that out by saying the code itself is actually public. So you know what code is being executed. You don't want to interact with a black box application because it, it could do literally anything. The secure thing is you want auditable code but private data so that you know what's happening to the data, but you don't get to see the raw data from all these different sources. And then you can have an output that's encrypted or an output that's public, and that informs the next stage of whatever application. That's how it works on our network. And uh, zero knowledge is, like I said, there's, there's limitations to its generalizability. It's also expensive. Coding zero knowledge things like designing ZK circuits is actually like really, really hard. We've just tried to make a generalizable smart contract platform where anybody can come in, code something in Rust, which is getting very popular in the blockchain space and beyond, code a smart contract in Rust, just deploy it on the network. It does exactly what you think it's going to do. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, can you give some more examples, like similar to that, you know, the private NFT auction example you gave, some other examples of applications that have already been built on secret or that you could see being built on secret? Yeah. So an auction is is kind of like a derivative use case. And what I'm excited about are like the primitives on secret network. And I'll explain what I mean. So on Ethereum, I would consider something like an ERC-20 token to be a primitive. It's a contract standard. Anybody can create their own ERC-20 token. It gets deployed on Ethereum. You can send it anywhere you want, do whatever. It's a primitive because on top of that very basic idea of a fungible token. You can design decentralized exchanges. You can have credit and lending platforms. Like the possibilities are really endless. So similarly on Secret Network, we have very similar primitive concepts, except they have this added element of programmable privacy, where you can have some parts public by default, some parts private. So an example would be a fungible token on Secret Network, where like an ERC-20, there's things that are auditable about it. You know how much the supply is, for example. You want to know how many tokens are in circulation. You need to make sure that there's an, as much of it as you think. But you can't go or you don't want to go and see exactly how much of it any individual account holds at any individual time. You know, The same way money works in the real world and that you can't always audit everybody's bank account at any minute. Like You want that sort of security and protection in the Web3 world. But that's not the way ERC-20s work. It is the way that SNP-20s, secret network 20s, like our equivalent of that on our network, that is the way that it works. These programmably private fungible token contracts. So that's a really powerful primitive. You might be asking, like, similarly, you've got ERC-721s on Ethereum. That's an NFT. Well, we have SNP-721s. We have the secret network secret version of NFTs. And that's even cooler because with public by default NFTs, you can only have public ownership, public metadata. 
So, so far, people have used NFTs to just be like, I own a JPEG. This JPEG lives somewhere in distributed storage, and here's proof that I own it. But that's about all you can do, because like we said earlier, really all public by default blockchains can do is show that you own something and give you access to do something with it. But there's no way to hide the fact that you own it from anybody else. And there's no way to hide properties of the things that you actually own or control. So NFTs could actually, they could actually be so much more. They could be so powerful. You could represent real world assets. Uh, you could you could have pretty much anything in the world represented as an NFT. The, the thing is right now we don't want to because everything would then have to be public. The same way that I don't keep a permanent public registry of all of my possessions. And I don't think that that would be a good thing at all, even if a government might like it. I think that this is like a fundamental human right that you don't have to have a public registry of everything that you own or everything that you do. Um, so a secret NFT allows you to have both public or private ownership. It's up to the user to display publicly whether they own something or not or prove they own something or not. So you could prove you have an NFT if you wanted. Otherwise, it doesn't show up. Or you can also have public or private metadata. So right now, with only public metadata, an ETH NFT just points straight to the URL for an image. And as an artist, you might be thinking, why would I ever make my work into an NFT? Now everybody has it. Anybody can right-click Save As. Anybody in the world has access to my art. A secret NFT means if you put your art in the private metadata instead of the public metadata, only the owner of the NFT can decrypt that private metadata and actually see what the artist wants them to see. From a content monetization standpoint, but also just from a creator, collector, consumer relationship standpoint, that's really the way that an NFT has to work in order to be something useful and not purely speculative. And it is the way, especially based on our conversations, it's, it's what artists are excited about, about the Web3 world. They want to be able to come in, have a permissionless relationship with a collector but only that collector, not with everybody in the world. Otherwise, how can they monetize their work? Otherwise, how can they say this is yours and not undermine the value of that work by saying also it's everyone else's at the same time? Adding that element of access control, again, this is a primitive. Anything could be represented as an NFT on Secret Network. But you can already see how combining these very powerful primitives of secret fungible tokens and secret non-fungible tokens, you get to these very complex applications. And at this stage in the network, what's exciting is we're transitioning from just having these primitives. Like we've had fungible tokens and non-fungible tokens on mainnet for I think a year and a half year respectively. So since those have been around, now we're finally seeing the very complex applications emerge. Uh, decentralized exchanges, lending platforms, NFT marketplaces, minting platforms, games, this is all coming to mainnet now, and they're all based on these very simple primitives, but very powerful primitives that, because they're private by default, have never before existed anywhere else in the Web3 space. Got it. And so is Secret Network its own thing, or can it be applied to Ethereum dApps? It's its own blockchain, and you want that, because otherwise you're always tied back to some sort of public by default system. We have a bridge to Ethereum, and what that means is you could take an asset on Ethereum you bridge it to secret network, and now it's a secret token. You start with an ERC-20, now it's a SNP-20, and now it's private again. But no matter what, it started public. So there's some information about it at some point that has to be leaked to someone. Same thing if you do an NFT bridge between Ethereum and secret. At some point, if you interact with a public by default blockchain, something somewhere is getting revealed to some parties that you didn't intend for it to be initially revealed to. So we, we value bridges, we value interoperability, but the way we see secret is we want secret to be the privacy hub for Web3. We think that most assets, fungible or otherwise, are going to start on a private by default chain. And if they need to be bridged to public by default chains so that you can use them in other applications or other ecosystems, people will still do that. But why would you choose to start public by default knowing you can never really actually then achieve privacy when you can start private by default, knowing that at any time, if you require becoming public, you as the developer, you as the user, you as, a, you as the owner and controller of a wallet address, you have that choice. That, I think, is the future. But you can't give somebody that choice if you design secret as just a layer two for Ethereum. You can't give somebody that choice if we say, like, oh, yeah, we're only interoperable with one blockchain. Like, we have to be a layer one, and we have to be interoperable with the West, rest of the Web3 universe. Otherwise, none of that design system works for anyone, developer, user, or otherwise. That makes sense. 
Something else I wanted to ask you about is a secret NFT project that I've been hearing murmurs about, and it looks really fun. It's called the Anons NFT. Is that right? Yeah, you're the first. You're the first person who got to ask me about this. That's wonderful. Awesome. So, so give us the alpha leak on Anons NFT. Tell us what this project is. I'm excited about Anons uh, because I have literally nothing to do with it. I mean, the way that Anons kind of sprung up was there was a number of privacy advocates in the secret network community who wanted to do the first NFT drop involving secret NFTs. Like I just got done telling you how cool secret NFTs as a concept are because you can have the private ownership, the private metadata, and there's tons of NFT artists, like existing NFT artists, existing NFT collectors who think this is like a totally new design space. So the Anons are the first experiment based on this idea of a secret NFT primitive. So there's going to be 580 Anons they're going to get have like an initial mint and distribution. They're going to be the foundation for an entire privacy-focused community. But the emphasis, as far as I'm aware, with the Anons really is on that community, the same way you've seen communities spring up around CryptoPunks, apes, etc. Except that I feel like with public by default NFT communities, it can't help but be about something that's conspicuous consumption. Because really, that's what ETH-based public by default blockchains like that's what they're optimized for, conspicuous consumption, because you have no choice but to show something off. Like, you may as well optimize for showing off the coolest thing. The cool thing about secret NFTs and communities based on that is like, it's not about being conspicuous. It's about forming an internal community around an ethos. And here, Anons, and they look cool as hell. Like anybody who goes and looks up Anons NFT on Twitter, you'll see some of the cool initial artwork. Anons are cool because of the privacy ethos, because there's nobody that's trying to say, like, show off, like, here's how Anon I am. It's just a way to show your identity and your affinity for this privacy ethos that you recognize that privacy is an important human right. And it's something fundamental that that everyone on the planet deserves to have, even though now it's a luxury good. What if we could make everybody on Earth, you know, have that fundamental human right, that right to privacy, the protection that affords you, the ability to protect your own identity, your own activities. I, I really love the Anon's ethos because it's so similar to the secret network ethos. So I reached out to the Anon's team. I was like, I want an Anon. And they said, you have to wait like everybody else. So I'm, I'm waiting for the Anon's drop. I'm sitting here. I know, I know a bunch of other people in our network, the validators, the developers, everybody's waiting for the Anon's drop. But it's really just like one group of like really cool experimenters in our community decided like this is such an amazing way to experiment with this new primitive and and I agree with them. I think that the very first experiments on a network like Secret, like a network that's never existed before, combined with a primitive that's never existed before, you know, combined with a space like NFTs where things that were first tend to have the most value, like punks have the most value because they've been around so long. You know, and then you combine that also with the idea that private by default blockchains should be the best at protecting the long-term value of these types of things. I look at Anons and I'm just like, well, these things are, are going to be unbelievably value in the, in, in the future, but also no one's ever going to want to sell one. Everybody's going to want to just be an Anon and, and it'll end up just being this incredible community of people that you know come in with an extremely strong ethos and affinity. And that, that's the kind of a community I want to be a part of. Yeah, gotcha. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I'm excited for the drop. I'm a little stressed out since there's only, what did you say, 580 580, of them? 580. I think, I think my guess is they're going to go like the mutant apes route. There's going to be the initial distribution for people who like, for them, it's important. The early community is super important. You want your early community to have the strongest ethos. And if you have this privacy ethos, that's how you discover the Anons. That's, that's probably part of why you discovered them is because you were genuinely interested in privacy as a technology and, and as a as a fundamental right. So the early community is going to be super strong. And then outside that community, as this expands, my guess is you're going to see, you know, not mutant anons, but something relevant. Like we're never it's never going to be one of those communities where you want to deliberately shut people out of what should be a global movement. It's it's just that, yeah, when you're starting with a limited group, when you're trying to be protective of that early ethos in any community, NFT based or otherwise, like you want to be around people like you. You want to find those like-minded people. And the initial 580 Anons I know are going to be incredible, but whatever comes next for Anons, the other, you know, the next 580 million people, I'm, I'm sure that this is going to end up being an extremely inclusive community, even outside like this early restricted drop. It's, it's still just an experiment, but eventually I, I think they feel the same way. We want this to be a movement. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely be following along. Uh, so to wrap up this conversation, what what are some things that Secret Network is working on in the short term that you can you know sort of tease to the public? And what is also the the long term, like the ultimate vision for Secret Network? Yeah, great questions. I mean, the long term vision is sort of what I said. We want to be this privacy hub for all of Web three. So long term, we value interoperability with every blockchain. We have IBC. Uh, coming up in our mainnet upgrade in October. IBC is in, is a major upgrade that every chain that builds in the blockchain universe of Cosmos is currently looking at how to integrate. So for us, um, IBC is the way that we're going to talk to chains like Atom, the way we're going to talk to chains like Terra, the way we're going to talk to chains all like Akash all over the Cosmos universe. But we already have bridges to Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Monero. There's a Bitcoin bridge in development that will also launch in October. So a lot of our goal is around interoperability in the long term, but a lot of those milestones are actually very near term and they're all going to come to mainnet in October. So you're going to be able to use Secret as a privacy hub for most of the known crypto universe, which is super exciting. At the application layer beyond the bridges, we really have the same two major sides of our ecosystem as every other blockchain does. We've got DeFi as a major vertical. So we have Sienna Network, which is an AMM and lending protocol that launches in October on mainnet. We have Shade. And Silk, that's a synthetic assets platform where their first product is a decentralized private by default stablecoin. That's also in development. They're already on testnet. So the DeFi side is moving super quickly uh, because there's so much demand for like a private by default DeFi ecosystem that's secure, that solves like the front running issues that are plaguing public by default DeFi. Uh, so that's coming very fast. I think you can probably tell by the way the last 20 minutes of this conversation is gone. The part I'm the most excited about is the secret NFT side of the ecosystem. So you've got the Anons, but that's very far from uh, the current NFT adoption in the network. There's a few other drops that are going to be happening uh, in the near future. There's also some uh, artists I can't name that are going to be working with secret networks, some of whom are have never touched an NFT before in their lives, some of whom are some of the biggest NFT creators in the world. Uh, so I'm really excited to watch them embrace this private by default model. And I wish to hell I could talk about some of them, but it is a secret. And as soon as it's not a secret anymore, I'll be the first person standing out there trying to get people to go try this new primitive, go interact with them. We also have an NFT marketplace that's supposed to be launching on mainnet in October called Stash. Uh, it's like Stash with two H's because you got to have the shush in it. Uh, so stash.co, if people check it out, they can sign up for an early beta look. I mean, there's there's so much launching that I I'm, I always fail to do it justice when I go on a, when I go on these kinds of things and like I, I I always forget like five things and then I have to message later I'm like I forgot about these guys I forgot about these guys so I guess best thing anybody can do is to follow our Twitter follow our channels and make sure when a new app comes out when a new NFT drops like you're watching because chances are you've whatever it is you've never seen anything like it. Yeah, I, I think you've spilled enough to uh, pique people's interests and get them, okay, you know, excited to at least go and check check out what you guys are working on. And I've got to ask you, you know, on the topic of secrets, what do you think is the best kept secret in crypto? Uh, mm, the best kept secret in crypto. I mean, honestly, I would my honest answer and the shitty answer. So I'll give you another one is secret network obviously like everyone should know what we're doing everybody should know about that private by default is even an option in the web3 space and because it's never existed people are just unaware that this entire design space exists so that's certainly my honest answer to expand on that answer and give you something that's less self-serving uh i would say the the best kept secret in crypto is that nothing matters more than community like these systems are bleeding edge they're nascent and the only systems, the only applications are, that are going to survive are the ones that have communities that grow around it, that are self-sustaining communities that have the right ethos, that have the right governance systems to be self-governing and self-sustaining. Like you wouldn't have the United States if you didn't have like all of the founders of the country. I, I don't have any particular reason to believe that, you know, America remains uh, that kind of uh cutting edge place to live. And there were certainly a lot of issues in the founding times that I, that I, uh, that I don't think we're very good. Like everybody was still owning slaves and women couldn't vote and everything was awful. But I will say that like, if it weren't for like how things looked in that democratic process and that early governing process, like America wouldn't even exist at all. 
And the fact that America is still here later as this great democratic experiment, you know, 250 plus years on, that is so unbelievably unlikely given the state of the world at that time. Like we have to like figure out like what happened to actually have that persist. So the communities and the systems that they build in the crypto space, it's going to be the same thing because this really is a revolution at the same scale as the American revolution was at that time. It's, it's for now a little more bloodless and it's happening sort of in parallel to like other revolutions that we're experiencing globally. But there's no denying that crypto has made a massive dent in the side of the world. And I would like to see it become sustainable in a way, again, that's empowering for people and not in a way that just helps winners continue to win. I do think we're still at a precipice where it could go either way. And if it's and if it's not for the communities behind these projects, right, if we don't have a strong sense of community and a strong sense of universal guiding ethos, then it could, nothing is certain. If we could always go the other way, this could all be a great experiment that ends in something worse than what came before. We all have a responsibility as part of the crypto community to come together and build what we want to see, not what's easy. Uh, yeah, that's, I think we do that. I hope we keep doing it. I hope so, too. I want to get some more Alpha Leak out of you. I, I like to end every podcast episode with a segment called Explain Your Tweet. So I've got a couple of tweets here that I've pulled, and I'm going to give you a chance to explain them. The first one is from September 25th, 2021. You said, the currency of culture has always been secrets. Tell us more. I, I meant that. I think like the currency of culture has always been based around it's not really money, right? It's access. It's what you know. It's who you know, especially in culture, like in music and anything that relies around like, you know, any kind of identity that you're forming, something that's you and not someone else. That That's cultural currency. And a secret is just something that is private only to you unless you share it with somebody else. And the way that we build our strongest relationships in the world is having a secret that you share with somebody else. You share something that other people don't know with a trusted friend. They share something back. Now our friendship is stronger. It's gotten closer. So when I say it's the currency of culture, what I really mean is like secrets have always been the currency of these sorts of global relationships. And no amount of money can buy trust from somebody else. In fact, it can it can remove trust if you if you treat money as equivalent to trust. And I think that secrets, you know, and what we're trying to do with access control and web three. Like that's where I think the culture and the currency of the web is going to move towards. It's going to be something a lot less conspicuous consumption focus and a lot more around like how do we build these more sustainable digitally native relationships and marketplaces. Um, and I do believe that secrets and maybe secret network itself uh, will be what underpins all of those relationships. Really solid take. And then I've got an, one more, one last tweet for you. This is from September 24th, 2021. You said, finally out of New York City after an exhausting, inspiring, hyper-effective week, somehow I left with more secrets than I came with. October can't come soon enough. So um, can you share just one secret that you came out of New York with? I mean, other than everything I've already talked about coming in October, which is a bunch of cool stuff, like I showed up, I was ready to share everything I knew. And somehow I walked away from New York with a bunch of people I hadn't met before in our community or who were building things in stealth. They hadn't really even told me they were building on secret. And I found out that they were. So I walked out of New York suddenly finding out about a bunch of exciting things that I didn't even know were exciting before I got there. I was like, here's everything I've been saying about the network. Now here's the other 80% of stuff I didn't even know was going on, but everybody was finally ready to show off. Like they were finally ready to trust me with that secret. That's why I said I came back with more secrets than I came with because I met a bunch of members of the secret community. We met a validator for the first time on the escalator at the mainnet conference. He, he turned to us. He was like, oh, yo, secret guys, I run one of your nodes. Never, never met this guy in my life, you know? And then, so you find out, then there was another um, company in the Terra community uh, Andromeda and, and they're building on secret now. And they, they were, they told me in our hotel, they, we happen to be staying in the same hotel. So like I'm coming away with all these exciting connections and all these exciting initiatives that like, you know, I want to know because I want to sell it. I want to, I want people to know that all this great stuff is happening, but like it's ultimately it's, it's not my secret to tell until somebody gives it to me. And I came back with a lot of secrets and some of them I've already shared and some of them aren't ready yet, but I, uh, you know, in October, probably uh, we'll be ready to share some of those too. 
Awesome. Okay. So last thing before you go tour, tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally. And then also tell people where they can go to learn more about Secret Network and keep up with all the updates that are coming up. And also tell people where they can get a privacy hat if they want one of those. Oh, man. Okay. So one by one, if you want to just keep up with progress on the project, we tweet everything. We're at Secret Network on Twitter. Uh, you could be our 100,000th follower if you hurry. I think we're at 95K right now. We might do something cool at 100. I've been threatening it for a while, so get on it. Um, I'm at Torbear. It's just my first name, last name. There's really only one of me, name-wise. Uh, so you can find me pretty easily. I tweet a lot there, too. I'm coming up on 10K. I said if I hit 10K followers, I would do an NFT drop. I'd do like a 1 to 10K drop. Uh, that's a big promise. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready to deliver on it, but you know, you can help keep me honest with a follow. Um, and then if you just want to learn more about the network and everything more generally, SCRT, which is also the ticker symbol of the coin behind the network, SCRT.network is our homepage. You go there, you can read everything about the network. Uh, if you go to SCRT.network slash agents, like secret agents, it'll teach you how to join our agents community. You get special access, you get special uh, NFT drops. Uh, it's really just like the best group of people you'll ever meet. A lot of them are probably going to become anons. So you got a couple different ways to meet the incredible people I work with on a daily basis in this incredible decentralized ecosystem. And if you want a privacy hat, uh, currently not available for sale, uh, like most of our swag. You can also see I've got a, a secret pin on the side. If you want a secret hat or you want a secret pin, you're going to have to come find us in person at an upcoming conference, which is not what anybody wants to hear in COVID times. But We'll be in Miami for the Decentral Conference, November 30th and December 1st, right before Art Basel. Uh, we'll be having the privacy hats back. We'll have all the pins back. We'll have some other secret swag back. Uh, and before long, it'll probably hit uh, some kind of store. Uh, I'm waiting to see if we can get a store up that, that accepts your secrets. I would rather, I would rather have that. Uh, like I said, I think secrets have always been the currency of culture. So it makes sense that that's what you need to buy a hat. But otherwise... Um, find us in person. We, we love to give them away. And I, and Diane, I hope you keep yours for a very long time because who knows, it, it, may, it may be a limited run. I, I for sure will. Um, I came home with it and my husband was like, you didn't get me one. So he might be stealing uh -oh. it away from me. So I might have to go see you again at one of these conferences and get another one, but uh, definitely will be in the household for a very long time to come. Thank you so much, Tor, for your time. Thank you for coming on, sharing all of your secrets. Uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we will be back again soon with another episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.